0: Welcome everybody, this morning we have the honor of um, engaging a conversation between uh, Gray Temple, myself, and Winnie Vargas. Um, Gray Temple is a longtime priest of the Diocese of Atlanta, Um, He was a parish priest for about 38 years, and um, 31 of those were spent uh, being a rector at St. Patrick's in Dunwoody, and uh, he also served at a church in Munich, Germany. Was that kind of towards the end, Gray? It was. I came out of retirement to do it. Oh, perfect. I think that sounds like a great gig. Um and he is also the author of several books, um, The Molten Soul, When God Happens, Gay Unions, and 52 Ways to Help the Homeless. He has a life career that has just been incredible, and I really enjoy um engaging him around topics of the spirit. So uh welcome, Gray.
1: Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah.
0: Um, so
2: um You all, if you can see this image, Grey Temple looks like he's sitting in a painting. Um, It's actually quite stunning um, on my screen. I bet you all can see that, it's just gorgeous. Um, I I might be the only person watching this um, who doesn't know Grey Temple um, in person. I think all of you have a long relationship with him and he is well beloved here at St. Luke's. Elizabeth had the brilliant idea of, um, of inviting him to lead off the series of this year Um, of education pieces where we are thinking about the lived reality of the last couple of years in our country. So um, how we've responded as people to COVID, the real loss and grief that we carry um, from early in 2020 into now 2022, um, the political realities um, that are forming around us and our engagement of them. So we've got about 45 minutes and I'm sure we're gonna cover all of that really well, wrap it up tight (laughs) and seal it up. Um, and but we are as you also know there's going to um, this is our series for the the spring of this year so that we can stand fully in this moment and be prepared for what resurrection looks like this Easter whatever that is for us as a community so welcome Gray and thank you Elizabeth for agreeing to be in this conversation with us and thank you to Wesley who is sort of not visible but is going to make sure that we all um, sound really erudite um, when you get to watch this on Sunday. So great. Um, I'm going to start a little bit off in left field. Um, you're a charismatic liberal. That's how you are defined um, in the in the media that I could find. Um, what a wonderful seeming paradox, but one that is um, m- maybe more common in the church um, in in England, frankly, than than here in the U.S. Can you tell us what that means? What that means to you, and what that's meant in your life?
1: Well, uh, as a community, we have our annual conventions in a broom closet. <laughs> we actually used to try to meet at Sewanee for a couple of years running and we got a whole huge mailing list of people who wanted to be kept in the loop but nobody who wanted to be in the group photo so, <laughs> something of the picture no but it means that, that people who take the phenomenon of spirit baptism or any kind of sense of breakthrough into the presence of god seriously don't necessarily hear god say from now on vote republican uh, we we've, we find that much of the social policy of this country which tends or at least says it tends towards care for the poor and disadvantaged is congruent with who and what jesus wills and so our uh, the regrettable path of the. There is form of evangelicalism. And, and it just is quite politically either reactionary or at least quietistic. So. It's. It's. I don't think it says very much about me these more these days anymore to say that I'm a charismatic. Uh, simply because there's no community that embraces that right now where, that is comfortable with me there. Is that enough?
2: Yeah, I'm actually. I'm really sorry to hear that. That's true because I, I. I was struck by that phrase because the current Archbishop of Canterbury talks about um, in personal prayer um, and other leaders in the church in England of, um, of basically the this presence of the spirit or speaking in tongues, that they come from those movements um, and have profound personal experiences of the spirit. And Phyllis Tribble right, famously said, that movement, it, the, the, the notion of the spirit alive and forming us is the is the religious language of the time for Christians. It's the most compelling movement in the world for Christians.
1: In the world, certainly, yes,
2: <clears throat> yeah.
1: it would be true in South America, large parts of Africa, Asia.
2: Yeah, I think a great loss for us, frankly, that that we have that it's become um, absorbed within the the religious right, frankly.
1: Essentially, yeah. yeah.
2: Well, I think it's fascinating that because I think part of the work and one of the reasons we wanted you to kick off this forum for us is it's not just that and Episcopalians can kind of we can. Uh, get stuck on the side of thinking right um, and trying hard to think right and acting right and praying right um, and and not be as articulate about God moving and changing us. Right, yeah. So tell me how you were thinking about the last year um, as that has to do with loss and grief, the last two years, I guess, the COVID times.
1: Okay. Shortly before the thing started a couple of years ago, I lost my wife of 52 years. So recently I've learned a fair amount about grief. And prior to that, in addition to losing my parents, uh, years ago, I lost my closest friend to a cancer that he had for two years and that finally took him. And who incidentally I've been thinking about a lot since hearing from Elizabeth, because he was the first one to start me thinking about hope. My wife embodied it in the nine years we had after her diagnosis. So um, there's a lot to be said, I think, about the presence and the power of hope in the face of inevitability.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that, in turn, has a fair amount to do with the spirit or the breakthrough into the sense of the presence of God as an attractive force in our future.
2: So say more about that, about hope, in, in the faith, the spirit in the face of inevitability.
1: Yeah, the first place is that I, I've read a little bit, and I've seen people try to differentiate optimism from hope And the best best sense I can make of the distinction is that hope is the ingredient that makes us courageous, that makes us brave. And I saw my friend face his death, and in our last conversation, he said, one thing I've learned is that there's no such thing as false hope. And he said that, knowing he was dying, he, he eyes wide open, he'd commissioned a friend to build him a coffin, and drag it into his room and show it to him. Uh, this was not a man who was unrealistic about what was coming. But again, one night he couldn't sleep because of his discomfort, and his his mother and his wife the next morning found him still in his rocking chair grinning and they said what's going on with you he said i've seen where i'm going it was shortly after that that he told me there's no such thing as false hope and then years years later just three years ago i saw my wife approach death in very much the same spirit that she was utterly realistic about it. She was quite sad about all the grandchildren's events she would miss and at the same time, hopeful and present. And looked to me like courage. So I tend to think of hope and courage as inextricably connected with each other. Uh,
0: So
1: when sorry, go ahead. When you say Go ahead.
2: Can I I ask you to define hope for us?
1: I wish. I don't traffic in definitions very well. So so no, I won't. (laughs) That's fair. You got I'm wondering
0: if you have a sense of what precedes hope or what what um What perhaps helped your friend and your wife come to that place where they were able to embody this?
1: Well, the first step for each of them was realism. And the medical profession is is helpful, more helpful these days than it used to be, because they will quite candidly say, you have this long, and this is what's going to happen, and this is what we'll try to do about it. So that's the precondition for hope to know what you're facing.
0: Ah.
2: So, if that is the precondition, right, if it's a precondition, isn't part of the struggle in COVID that we don't know what we're facing? Um, You know, we were Mm going to have church on Sunday and you were going to, we were going to, we're going to have this conversation on Sunday morning.
1: Yes. Yeah. And Part of the political controversy at the moment is the indefiniteness of the instructions we're getting from the government. And apparently that's not entirely their fault. <clears throat> it's just not clear yet. But it's terribly frustrating because we can't anticipate. Are we going to get past this or is this something chronic we will live with for the rest of the human race's history? don't know
2: so i hear you talking about hope as being realistic about our present condition as well as we can yeah. um, which gives us courage to Im- to imagine the future right to imagine a future
1: i'm not sure realism is the source of courage yeah. or, or hope it's just this precondition
2: precondition yeah
1: in the That's new Testament, we're told talking about jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despise the shame uh, so sort of that that spatial difference that in front of him in the forefront of his vision is something that he's not in yet but that energizes him to be who he is honestly at the moment
2: And how do you understand this? The spirit um, engaging that, or participating in that process? I
1: wish I did. Uh, (laughs) All sorts of spiritualities attempt to summon the spirit, and uh, unlike our pets, the spirit doesn't appear when we whistle. But. And i'm not always sure what the pattern is for the occurrences but the occurrence itself is the source of hope because uh behind all of our tragedies and uh misfortunes there is this sense of ultimate reality that draws us
2: um, I went to to Union uh, Theological Seminary, and uh, Dr. Cohn was our theology professor, and he was the fir- he was the first person I heard speak about um, the difference between um, white Pentecostalism and black Pentecostalism, right? And the charismatic uh, movements in the white church and the black church, um, and the different political alignments, but also, as you said, that kind of the um, the the reality beyond the lived reality, right? Like the, like who who needs to imagine a different way? Or to know of a different way. Um, do you, I, don't, I don't even know. I'm not sure I know how to formulate this question. But I, my guess is, there's a pretty profound resource for us in this time in that tradition.
1: The black tradition is a much better resource than the white tradition. Uh, you probably know the writings of the Dutch theologian Jean-Jacques Surmonde. Uh, Word and spirit at play, but he talks very much about the development of each and points out how reactionary the white charismatic renewal has been and how radical the black Pentecostal movement always was and remains.
2: Do do you think we have access um, to some of that understanding and what's happening to Are there ways to do that because of the last couple of years and this crisis
1: we certainly have a field of play for it the question is whether we exploit it use it or duck from it or uh, invent mythologies to help cope with it as i think is largely happening on the right wing mm-hmm. One of the (laughs) things, one instance of a rebirth of hope for me just occurred when we began this conversation because as Elizabeth introduced it, it was so encouraging to know that the major parish in this diocese is concerned about what's happening to this country and thinks that it's all right to talk about that. That's an emblem of hope. They weren't doing that in 1931 in Germany. They were having meetings with Hitler and praising him for his spirituality. So, uh, The very fact that we can have this conversation is an emblem of hope. And again, it's not disconnected from the phenomenon of courage. You guys have been brave.
2: Well, you've opened it up for us, and let's talk about that. Um, so I'm new to St. Luke's, um, and mm-hmm. I, I find the Diocese of Atlanta and St. Luke's Church really exciting, frankly. Um, I'm, mm-hmm. And a little bit of that could be because I get to be outside, and there's sunshine, and it's been a rough two years. I'm sure that's a little bit of it. Yes. But I think a lot of it is the spirit of the people here um, and what feels possible um, right. here um, because people are dreaming it. Um, and yeah. we are in a really complicated time. Um, in my lifetime it feels more complicated to speak authentically into this time than the rest of my life so far um, and I'm guessing that's true for people that have lived longer than me. Um, what I hear um, is fear of partisanship, of provoking um, across the the uh, that there are um, kind of trigger words or ideas that provoke people to kind of shut down and um, not stay present. Um, that that we are how we are divided as a country is. Um, we are very very vulnerable as a church as churches to that, and right. um, we have to be careful to stay out of it. Um, which seems to be um, antithetical to what the gospel calls us to.
1: Amen. Yes, has very so little to do with hope, and it has nothing whatever to do with courage.
2: So we brought you here to help us fix that. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry. So, so part of what's happened, right, is that as, I feel this very personally, that in a time where I, in some ways, have fewer emotional resources than usual because I'm so isolated from the people I love, right? The, the ways I know how to live and care for myself and the people I care about really haven't been possible for two years, yeah. right? So, and I, I feel my lack of capacity around that, um, which I've never thought about before or felt before, and how that ties to my capacity to stand up and tell the truth and to call a community, um, to, to say true words without thinking about it, frankly, because it's the truth that leaps off the page of the text.
1: Yes, um, yes, yes, yes.
2: So I'd like to know how you've experienced the last couple of years, and then help us, help us think about this. How do we step back into courage authentically um, and maybe even gifted by the, the times that we're living in? Well,
1: a uh, couple of things. The first is, I haven't gone to church very much because uh, it's discouraged that we sit in the pew with people and that we sing and whatnot because folks get sick and die when they do that. Uh, But what little contact I've had with congregations on Sunday at worship leads me to think that we're scared to reflect on what's happening to our country. You just don't. You go around different churches, you don't hear much conversation about it. Uh, This reminds me, as somebody who's fairly intimately acquainted with Germany, of 1931, and a dangerous place for a country and for a church to be. What's been encouraging has been the blossoming of what Wesley represents, And that is Zoom meetings, the possibility of other forms, again, mediated by the internet, to be together with other people. And in my life and circumstances, several communities have grown up around this screen that I'm looking at of faces of people I love very much and trust very deeply. And that for me is uh, a reinforcement to hope. And again, a spur to courage. And I might say also the announcement of you all's concern about talking about what's going on in the country and the world and our lives is for me an an emblem of hope. It reflects, there's a way of viewing theology that says that the creation hasn't happened yet, that uh, The creation is not the current momentum from a past event, but it's being drawn into the power of an event that hasn't happened yet, but that we can feel. And that would be the eschaton, if you would, or uh, what the Spirit reveals to us with the Spirit's inbreaking.
2: I've actually but
1: never that, heard that. All of that feels possible to me at this juncture.
2: You have to say more about that, I've never heard that. So the creation hasn't happened yet.
1: Right. Yeah. Uh, the Much of the difficulty with the way Western theology has defined things for centuries has been to say, well, if God already did the creation and knows what's going to happen and all that, uh, what difference does my behavior make?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah.
1: I don't know Calvin well enough to know how he answered that, but he certainly left the problem to us. But if you switch it around, that uh, you look that the, the Bible doesn't tell us uh, that God created the universe out of nothing. The ex nihilo is a subsequent supposition on the part of the church. What the Bible tells us is that when in the beginning God was shaping stuff, it hadn't been shaped yet. And so we use the Spirit to shape it. So the Bible doesn't know or much care where the stuff came from that we're made of. But the act of creation is God moving into chaos and producing order. And in that sense, The real dwelling place of God is the future, and we're being drawn into it. And this moment, even in our country's almost despair, uh, that's part of it. That's part of what God's shaping. And what hope would encourage us, literally, to do is to be part of that. And one of the things that would mean is not being silenced by the bullies. Well, I definitely
2: identify with the idea that we are in the chaos right now before something being created. It feels chaotic to me. Um, But what a profound, but with the framework that you're describing, um, would impact every part of our lives if we don't think perfection was before, or even like good church was before, or or good America was before.
1: Right, yes. Make America great again. And then somehow it? it's
2: a, it's a betrayal if we don't believe, if we don't believe that there was a perfection before.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right.
2: Well, I love this. What a great way to think about the the future. If God is in the future, then we have to be about we have to be about getting there, right, and defining that together.
1: Exactly. Yeah. But, again, but it also
2: uh,
0: gives space for a lot of. Um, Gener- I'm going to make up a word, generativeness, gener- yep. in the midst of this chaos of kind of not feeling so much despair in the chaos, but recognizing that we are moving towards a new hope, a new reality, right. even in the midst of what feels like utter despair.
1: Right. And in that regard... My wife, as of the time she died, was a very active psychotherapist. And one of the things we used to discuss was the value in psychotherapy of the therapist's sense of mischief. Yes. Mischief is wonderful because it, it shatters frames of reference so that the pieces have to form again in some new pattern.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And so my hope would be that courageous, hopeful people in this country uh, would get in touch with our mischievousness, which is not to be sociopaths, but it's to be hopeful. That in the, um, in the light of, as the scripture says, the glory that's set before us, that we wouldn't take stuff so seriously.
0: Now you've introduced mischievousness as a spiritual practice. Yes. I love it. Yes.
1: Because mischievousness is one of the, the primary therapeutic tools in the face of resistance.
0: Mm-hmm. And it I also
2: gives away, but it's, why, it's why, uh, that's why preachers tell jokes, right?
1: Exactly. And it's why Jesus teased. Used outrageous metaphors for God. A corrupt judge. All that.
0: Great fun. Sorry,
2: Elizabeth, I cut you off.
0: I can't even remember what it was now.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I was also thinking about in protests, you see um, in social movements, right? You'll see like a marching band play. You know, you see Mm -hmm. that someone is usually playing when those are
0: constructive you know and i'm a yeah good what yeah and i was thinking about it i remembered what it was it mischievousness brings you out of entrenchment so we can all get self-righteous in our own points of view Mm -hmm. yeah and so coming in with the mischievous spirit you can't be completely entrenched heels down Mm -hmm. um you've got to look for different openings
1: One of the things mischievousness will do is uh, complicate the experience of looking in the mirror. (laughs) Say more. (laughs) I think I said enough. (laughs) (laughs)
0: So,
2: um, so Gray, you've alluded to um, you kind of referenced the, the state of things in our country. Do you want to be more specific about what you think the dangers are of this time?
1: The dangers, I think at this point, if I can use a $5 word, are epistemological. What do we know and how do we know it? And so many people at this juncture have abandoned the inherited norms of how you know something and what constitutes a believable proof. And the whole notion of alternative facts, or in a previous administration, they said, we now make reality. Uh, We don't operate within it. And what scares me about that is Voltaire's observation, that if you can induce people to to believe absurdities, you can lead them to commit atrocities and I think we celebrated one of those sentences yesterday.
2: Yeah, and I should tell people, we're recording this on uh, January 7th. So yesterday was January 6th. Right. Mm-hmm. But is it, is it a part of what's happening with these alternative realities, these this kind of fake news, right? Um, that like, how, my understanding of the reason that people are compelled by it, and many people are, right? Like we're confused by how many people are, is that there's something in it that's true always there's some hint of truth or some ongoing lie that we understand as a truth that we've told ourselves for a long time
1: there is certainly an underlying pain that makes us vulnerable to believe the truth that poses as a solution i mean the the people who put on MAGA hats really had grievances yeah i've lost that train
2: so if we are thinking about and i am still kind of because i I think it's so compelling um thinking about the spirit and this idea of, of the charismatic renewal um and i i respect that in that you you don't you cannot force the spirit to show up though i did once go to an episcopal church that was a charismatic renewal church my um, parents' congregation, Church of South India congregation, met in their chapel, um, and I, so I looked at the bulletin as an Episcopal priest. I was really intrigued that they were charismatic, and it said in the bulletin when the spirit was, um, when that moment was happening, it was in the liturgy, which I thought was pretty fantastic.
0: Wow, okay. they could yes. script it in in yeah. good order.
2: Yeah, they they had they had her under control. Um,
1: <laughs> yes, they did.
2: Well, but part, so part of that work, though, right? Why, why I I find this I find this topic of charismatic renewal so interesting, is part of the work of what's happening to us is that we are being we are clearly being changed, um, in this moment personally, right, and as a as a nation in problematic ways probably, but personally we're all being changed, in this time that we're facing, um, we're encountering the potential for profound evil in our public life, yes, in a in a different way. Um, to your mind, does that does that equip us in new ways to engage it or does it like how does it weaken us? Like what how do we do this, sir?
1: <laughs> well, uh not by putting old wine in new skins. Uh It's new wine and we need new skins. One of the skins is what we're doing. I mean, electronic. Uh, this kind of communication with each other. Willingness to have this kind of conversation is to some extent new because as a church, really since the early seventies, we've been awfully polite or at least thought about trivialities that weren't as substantive. past that, I don't know anything that you don't.
2: Well, it's all pushing on that a little bit, because I think one of the reasons since the 70s we've been very polite in parts of the church um, is because the civil rights movement happened. Yeah. Right, and if we engage those issues robustly as church, we were, I mean, the generation of people that are my elders were taught you would break everything.
1: In the mid-1960s, the presiding bishop called the general convention back together and essentially gave away the Episcopal Church's budget and uh, in connection with uh, President Johnson's war on poverty. And it was perfectly glorious. It made him the most hated man in the Episcopal Church. Uh, But it was such a proud moment to be an Episcopalian and to recognize I belong to an organization who, for the sake of justice and the love of our neighbor, is willing to contemplate its own death. And um, I do miss that. There's a possibility for that again today.
2: Yeah, it's presenting Bishop John Hines, um, who is a great hero of our church. Um, oh,
1: yes, yeah, great to Amen, yeah,
2: from the, the um, I, th- I think we are in a, in a critical moment like that. yeah um, and the, you know our bishop has been talking a lot about loss and death um, in anticipation of, of what comes next. And yeah. I think in, in our church we've organized a lot of that language, again in my lifetime around the the decline of the congregation, yeah. as opposed to the, to dying to what is evil, <laughs> you know,
1: and
2: <laughs> um, dying to sin.
1: Yeah, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, it's not about us.
2: It is not about us.
0: Yeah, and yet we fear that um, kind of decline or disruption, or um, and and I feel like that's where we get kind of stuck in our patterns and our rhythms of ways of being. So, how do we, um, Gray? One of your um, books is The Molten Soul. How do we stay molten?
1: How do we um, <laughs> well,
0: not become so calcified?
1: I had to write a book about it because it wouldn't fit into a sermon. <laughs> 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 but uh, one of the things we do is recognize that our styginess and institutional tenacity over old forms and hopes would not is that that becomes part of the chaos that God is shaping. And the simplest thing to do in the face of that is say, uh, oh Lord, bring it on. Uh, Take us in our chaos and our stogenous and uh, confusion and antagonisms with people that we really love and all that and move and reshape us. And let's see what happens.
2: Oh Lord, bring it on is a pretty great sermon title. I like that. I know. <laughs> yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, really, you've named it that what we've what we've kind of done over the years in, in being so focused on ourselves institutionally is we've drawn people that want to be focused on the institution and it's decline. Like we've we've attracted exactly what we are. Um
1: and, oh my and we are A former bishop of this diocese used to say the norm is uh, ministers minister and congregations congregate.
2: (laughs) The prankster diocese we have here, huh? (laughs) Um, And yet, right, um, despite us, people keep coming to the church, um, despite the church, um, and telling us they expect to encounter God there
1: and frequently do yeah and i'm not sure that has much to do with any program that we've instituted Uh, i think it has to do with forces we don't control
2: (laughs) so if you were in a parish today um what would you what would you want to see in a parish the next couple of months to to invite those forces we can't control.
1: Conversation between people about where we've bumped into that force. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: To, to break it out of Sunday school and into the coffee hour.
2: And so just to make sure I'm hearing you correctly, you, you're talking about conversations in the congregation as opposed to kind of a, a lecture to the a class. Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, Amen. I think people are eager to have that I think folks um, don't have the language for it I don't think we've equipped people with language and confidence to, to be able to speak to that
1: and part of the lack of equipment is that we don't have the norms mm-hmm. years ago at St. Patrick's in the adult Sunday school, a woman lost her temper. And she said, I don't know what's wrong with you people. But uh, six weeks ago, I came to church, and you you said, how you doing? And I said, well, I've been feeling depressed. And two of you offered me Xanax. (laughs) A month ago, I came to church, and somebody said, how you doing? I said, well, I've had this headache. And three of you offered me aspirin. Said, don't any of you know how to pray? And there was a long silence. And somebody said, but that was during coffee hour. And there was a longer silence, and then everybody exploded with laughter. And that was one of the beginnings of the Holy Spirit renewal at St. Patrick's. Uh, That woman's rage. That can happen anywhere.
2: Thank you. That's, that's a, that might be a perfect place to end this conversation. It's just wonderful. Um, great. Thank you. Thank you for this conversation with us.
1: Well, I am going to miss you guys and pray for you because I'm excited about what you're doing.
2: Thank, thank you. Yeah. Can, can we impose on you to ask you to pray for us as, a, as how we close?
1: Uh, happily. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, God be with us all. God, thank you so much for your presence among us today, for the impulse to have this conversation, for what all you intend to do with it as it spreads out into St. Luke's and beyond. Ask that your spirit would so visit each of us with a sense of the presence of Jesus, that our courage, would mount again and be made joyful, and adventurous, and mischievous, and that it all be to our Lord's glory and to his good pleasure, in his name. Amen.
2: Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you.
1: God bless it, Thank you. Gentlemen. Fun being with you.